fifth grade, you are welcome to attend our children's uh, ministry program for you this morning. You can head right out the back doors where your leaders are ready to greet you. Good morning to all of you. If you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, pretty please. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black one in the rack in front of you. And uh, if you're especially new with us, I want to encourage you to open that Bible up. Just keep it open the whole time uh, because we're going to refer back to it several times. While you're getting your Bibles open and ready to take a few notes, uh, let's talk a little business real quick. Next Sunday, it's going to be a little different. This is the last time we meet at 8.30. Some of you are surprised to know we've been meeting at 8.30. You kept coming at 9 o'clock this whole time the past year. (laughs) I'm not going to name any names. But... uh, But next week, uh, with state restrictions lifted by the governor, uh, we're going to meet, we're going to begin meeting again as one church, one worship service together at 9 o'clock. That means the mask ordinance is is lifted and occupancy limits are are lifted. Everything's different. Now, uh, here's the two things I really want us to focus on. And I mentioned this in some communication this week. I just want to make sure that this is on our radar. Number one, uh, many among us, many of the people that we love and care for are dealing with uh, very real anxiety related to the lifting of restrictions. And so uh, if that's you and if you have uh, just a very serious burden about this or concern, uh, concern with your church. I want to talk to you this week or call and talk to one of the pastors because nothing changes if we don't talk. And so let's not live in fear and anxiety or especially not with hypothetical fears driving the bus. Uh, let's talk. Let's chart a way forward together. We want to care for you um, and, and, uh, and just make sure that you're with us and you're okay. The second thing is this. I really want us to continue to do what we have done this whole year and really these past 70 years, I think, is to, to excel in extending kindness to one another. We've got to put the needs of others before our own. And so if you see someone uh, wearing a mask, if you desire to wear a mask, let's say it this way, if you desire to continue to wear a mask or you need to wear a mask, do that without fear. You're not going to be made fun of or poked fun of or, or anything at all. You do what you know you need to do. And then the rest of us, we're going to be extremely kind uh, and generous to those who are wearing masks. So just be mindful of where you sit, who you sit near. If someone's wearing a mask, don't sit right in front of them or right on their hip pocket or right behind them. Uh, give them a little bit of space or just ask the question, where would you like for me to sit? And uh, so if you'll do that, I think that we can keep our focus on Christ and it's going to be a beautiful day. You know, I was telling someone the other day, maybe it was yesterday, that there's something about lifting these restrictions that's going to be new and something that's going to just be business as usual in a glorious way. The new part will be the restrictions gone. The same part, we're going to do what we've always done, which is be champions for each other, exalt Jesus Christ together, be concerned about our communities, put our noses in the Word of God. So there's something that's going to be beautifully similar next week, and uh, I can't wait to get there with all of you. So if you've got questions about anything we're doing, call this week. Let's get together and let's talk. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. The nation of Israel has an elevator problem. Probably didn't know this. But a number of years ago, a law was passed that said every building in Israel that had an elevator had to have a Sabbath elevator. What that is, is it's a, it's a mode on an elevator that you can turn on or off with a key that would make the elevator Sabbath compliant. Here's the thing. Since 
Sabbath forbids people from working, and since pushing an electric button is considered work, then some of these elevators need a Sabbath mode in which the elevator stops at every floor. And that way you don't have to push a button and you don't violate Sabbath law. Uh, and the struggle with that is if you're on the first floor and you've got to get to the 10th floor, but the elevator's going up at the third floor, you have to wait for that elevator to hit every floor on the way up and then every floor on the way down before it gets to you. Now, in 1984, a rabbi named Yisrael Rosen wrote a long paper regarding further Sabbath concerns related to elevators. Rabbi Rosen said that ascending in an elevator was no problem, but descending posed a few problems. One problem is that when an elevator descends, it doesn't descend via a motor, but via brakes that work in opposite to the weight load that it is carrying. So it is actually the passenger's weight that pushes the elevator down as it descends. And in some nooks and crannies of Sabbath law, when you apply your weight to a force, you are working, and that's a violation of Sabbath law. And so uh, Rabbi Rosen took up the question, is it lawful, biblically lawful, for a Sabbath-observant Jew to descend in an elevator. Not only is the problem that your weight is pushing down on the mechanism, but also your weight in the elevator pushing down triggers electric switches that turn on lights that signify which floor you're on as you go down. So even though your finger is not pushing a button, your body is creating the pressure that causes the electric switch to work again. The question arose, is this a violation of Sabbath principles? Very long paper, a lot of back and forth as he dealt with various points of view on this issue. His conclusion was this, it is not automatically a violation of Sabbath to go down an elevator. But what might help people more is if the mechanism that operates the lights at each floor, if that mechanism was disabled so your body weight is not pressuring the switch in order to turn on the light of the elevator. And therefore, you can be a Sabbath observant person. And you and I would read that paper and listen to that story and we would think, what does that have anything to do with God? That's the right question to ask. But I would say this, you and I are not so unlike those who are asking questions about elevators and Sabbath. As wild as it might seem, there's actually quite a few similarities between us and them. You see, when we read that God rested on the seventh day, we're going to ask Law questions, rule questions. God rested on the seventh day. So some of the questions that come to mind are, should we worship on the seventh day rather than the first day? Should church be on a Saturday rather than a Sunday? Are we still under the fourth commandment to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy? Is that still binding on us in a, in a moral way, an ethical way in our relationship with God? Uh, what can we do and can we not do on a Sunday we ask rule questions when we read about the seventh day, and we're asking the wrong questions. We're approaching it entirely wrong. Because what do those rules have to do with God? What we need to be asking is a relationship question. 
I think that's what the purpose of the seventh day in creation was initially. Think about it. There are witnesses to God's seventh day rest. First and foremost, it's Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve uh, were witnesses. They were present on earth doing the work God had commanded them to do when God initiates his rest and takes his rest from his creative work. And so it seems that Adam and Eve learned something about the nature of their relationship with God by watching him rest from all the work he'd done. And then if you were to fast forward many years and generations, Moses wrote the book of Genesis after God delivered the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Their enslavement had been hard. And now they hear for the first time that the God of their deliverance worked and then rested on the seventh day. And again, it seems right that they learned something about the nature of their relationship with their delivering God when they learn he's a God who rests. So if you read about the seventh day of creation and walk away asking a rule question, you've got it all wrong. I think what the seventh day accomplishes ultimately for you and I is a little bit of what we just did. It leads us to worship. To see God rest from the work of creation and to declare this day holy, it leads us to a place of adoration and awe. And I don't know about you, but it's, my take on the world right now is that our worship tanks are way empty. We have an overflow of anger. We have an abundance of frustration. Uh, we have a surplus uh, of, of doubt and fear. We have a deficit church of worship and adoration of God. Our days are defined by what angers us. And so it is so vital that today we sit with God, we watch him rest, and we respond in worshipful awe. My purpose today is to increase your adoration of God, and I want to do that by showing you two meanings of God's rest here in Genesis. So I want you to follow along with me in your Bible as I read. Now, the passage for today we've printed and put out is 2, 1 through 3. But we're actually going to start one verse earlier in chapter 1. So I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 31 through chapter 2, verse 3. Follow along with me as I read. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. So you tell me, as you read this, what's the tone of the passage? Is the tone of the passage one where the reader should walk away thinking about a long list of rules that God requires of us. Is it just tone? Is that the tone of the passage? Or does the tone strike you as something a bit different? I, I think the tone leads us to see God at rest from creation and to rejoice in all that he's done the same way he's rejoicing in it as well. And so let me show you a couple of insights into God's rest that's going to lead us to that sort of worshipful awe of him. The first insight is this. God's rest means that he delights in me. 
God's rest means that he delights in me. Knowing this is going to lead you to praise and worship. So the end of chapter 1 gives us an important detail that impacts our understanding of the seventh day. Verse 31 says, God saw all he had made and it was very good indeed. God finished creation. He looked at all he had made and he said, this is good. This is very good indeed. So the chaos of early creation is gone. Everything exists in its proper place, fulfilling its God-given purpose. His image bearers are doing precisely what he has created and commanded them to do. Everything is very good, and so God rested. Why did God rest? Was he tired? Was God the omnipotent one fatigued by creation? As if God said, you know, I was going so strong until that very last animal. It's such a strange animal. It just took so much energy out of me. And I don't know why it turned out this way. So odd and so self-absorbed. I'm just too tired to do anything about it. I guess that's just how cats are going to be forever. Is that it? I don't think God has a fatigue problem. I don't think God requires a nap. Rather, I think God's delight over his creation at the end of chapter 1 informs his work stoppage in chapter 2, verse 2. God is done creating, and so seventh day, God steps back and he takes full delight in all that he's made. You know a little bit of this feeling. Have you ever finished a large project or something new, and then you step back and you look at it full of satisfaction and joy at what you've done, right? I think it seems like every other person started baking sourdough bread this past year. I don't know what's up with that, but you can't find instant yeast anywhere, or you couldn't for a while anyways, but maybe you finally nailed that loaf of sourdough, and uh, you step back and you think, oh, this is great. I love this. Maybe you had to put together a trampoline for your kids or maybe like the lines on your lawn just turned out just right after mowing and you know it's the envy of all the neighborhood. Maybe some project at work. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's a holiday. Have you ever had this moment? It's a holiday. All your people are in the same place together. Everyone's laughing and loud and you just, you quietly take it all into your heart as you watch. And you just think, yeah, this is very good indeed. We have a glimpse of this feeling in our own human experience. We know what it's like to delight in the work of our hands. And so God, who experiences all of this in infinite measure, in ways we cannot understand fully or comprehend, God delighted in his creation. And for how long does he delight in his creation? If you know your Bible, you might say, well, he probably didn't delight in it for very long because the days of Noah are just around the corner and everyone's going to rebel against God and then he's, he's going to wipe the place clean and start over. I mean, that's true. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But I would argue this. I would say the fact that God began creation anew with Noah is a sure sign of his delight in his people. 
God's delight in his people is seen throughout his history with them. He rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He gave them the promised land. He brought them back from exile. He sent his son to die for our sin. He put the gospel of Jesus Christ in your ears and opened your heart to believe all of this because he delights in his people. The cross is our constant reminder of God's delight and love for us. His love for us is deep. It is unending. I don't use the word unending lightly. You see, God rested from creation and delighted in it on the seventh day. When did that delight come to an end? Was it on day eight? Does God just get 24 literal hours to delight before it's time to get back on the clock and go on to something else? That's not what the scripture gives us. Nowhere in chapter 2 does it say that was the end of the seventh day. Do you notice that? Through all the days of creation, we have that same pattern. Evening, morning, first day. Evening, morning, second day. We don't have that for the seventh day. It's not like God rested for 24 hours and then he clocked back in because on the eighth day, God made a farmer. I really thought that was going to be funny. I did. It's this... Paul Harvey thing, and it became a Ford commercial during the Super Bowl. It was totally cheese ball. But this is not farm country. That would have killed in Kansas. And so I'm just going to make a little note to take that out for the 11 o'clock service. Appreciate your help in writing this sermon. So Genesis 2 doesn't give us an end to the seventh day. God's delight in you has not ended and there's such freedom in knowing this. I mean, how often do we, we feel like we stand before God at such a deficit? But he loves you so much. That love isn't to say, yeah, just be a hot mess and be human trash and just live for your flesh. That's not what that is about. He delights in you so much that he will not leave you in your brokenness. But he sent his son to die on the cross in your place for your sin so that you could be redeemed and healed and rescued and given new life, abundant life even today. This is how much God delights in you. And there's such freedom when you realize that. That you don't have to work to earn this love that's freely given. You don't have to woo him to be on your side. He already is and he has been forever. How amazing is a God like that? It's, it's incredible just to be loved but it's astounding to be loved by God. It's a love that pulls us closer to him and teaches us how to live in his image. When you read day seven, you've got to know this. God delights in you. There's a second meaning to this day of rest for God. It's important for us to understand. God's rest is a foretaste of heaven. Not only is it a picture of his delight in you, but it's a foretaste of heaven. Look at verse 3 with me. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. What does it mean that God declared the day holy? Well, just in very practical terms, it means he set the day apart from other days. There's something unique about the seventh day that 
it, it alone possesses in comparison to the other six days. And we aren't told in Genesis chapter 2 what that precisely means for God's people. And in fact, you might wonder, what does it have to do with people at all? Because uh, it's just a day, and the day is holy. There's nothing there about God's people necessarily. Well, we don't learn the exact purpose of the seventh day for people until later on in the book of Exodus. When the seventh day was declared holy, Adam and Eve were already holy without sin for a time. Chapter 3 is coming. But they were without sin. They're holy. And everything in God's creation is operating precisely according to his word and his will. But when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, he gifted them this seventh day rest so that they would remember their deliverance and they would remember their deliverer and they would pattern their lives to live and be more like him. Now, it didn't take long for God's people to mess it up. They were told to rest, and right away they didn't rest. Go read Exodus 16. It's just baffling. And and then God gave more instructions. Here's what Sabbath rest looks like, precisely. And by the time we get to the days of Jesus, those who are observing, observing the Sabbath have completely warped and manipulated it into a mountain of laws and regulations that no longer reflected the heart of God, no longer strove towards holiness, no longer had anything to do with one's relationship with God at all. So mission accomplished. I mean, mission accomplished if, if the mission of the seventh day is just to get people to not work. But in that long list of Sabbath rules, God's people lost sight of God. The goal of Sabbath was never not to work. The goal was holiness. It's always holiness. So, by the time Jesus is on the scene, the seventh day is a disaster. It it has more rules than ever and produces less holiness than ever. And John chapter 5 tells a particularly challenging story that helps us understand how messed up the scene is. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, and he comes across a man who has been lame for 38 years. Every day for 38 years, he lays on a mat, and he begs, and then he hopes for a miracle. And and I want you to see what happens when Jesus engages this man. In John chapter 5, starting in verse 8, Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working and I am working also. It's interesting that the religious leaders see a man healed, a man they saw lying on the ground every day for 38 years. They see him upright, walking, and healed, and yet they become so angry because Jesus told him to carry his mat. So angry that now they want to destroy Jesus. That tells me that a person can have perfect Sabbath observance 
according to God's rules and man-made rules and still miss Jesus. And then verse 17 is the mic drop moment where Jesus says, my father is still working. It is Sabbath day. It is rest day. It is don't work day. And Jesus says, my father is still working. So am I. Is that true? Oh, it's absolutely true. In Genesis chapter 2, we are not told that God simply stopped working. We're told specifically in verse 3 that God rested from all the work of creation. His creation work has finished. But God wasn't done with work just yet. With the fall of man, God began the work of redemption. And that's why Jesus can say, my father's still working and I'm still working also. You see, God will redeem his people once and for all by finishing the work of salvation by sending his son to the cross. So the seventh day, the holy day, was the first time in God's creation that his work was complete and he could dwell with his people in perfect holiness. His people enjoyed him fully and he enjoyed them fully. The holiness of the seventh day is what makes Eden paradise. It's not trees and fruit and water and garden and animals. What makes Eden paradise is the perfect union between God and his people. They're dwelling and living together in perfect holiness as image bearers of God. And so in that sense, the seventh day is a foretaste of what God has waiting for you. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that God has a Sabbath rest waiting for his people. What is that Sabbath rest? Are you going to get to heaven and God says, here's your day of the week? That's not what the Sabbath rest is. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, God's only son, that we enter that rest. That is a soul rest that is not 24 hours long, but an eternity long an eternity in which we dwell with God in perfect union forever. And we have a, a little idea of what that's going to look like. We've been given a glimpse of what that glory is going to be. It's in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. And it reads like this. The Apostle John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them just like he did on that seventh day. Now for 2,000 years, Christian people have recognized the holy nature of the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday. And we've understood that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ interprets all of life, all of Scripture for us. And so the first Christians recognized immediately that Jesus fulfilled the law. We're no longer under the law. The fourth commandment is not binding for our salvation. And yet they saw in that commandment and in the pattern of life that God gave to his people something of importance, this regular rhythm and routine of gathering together for the purpose of worshiping God with our brothers and sisters in the faith. 
And so why not do that on Saturday, the seventh day? Well, because Christ rose on the first day. That defines our relationship with the Lord and with the world. And so for 2,000 years now, God's people have gathered together once a week. And the focus of our gathering has not been on rules. What can we do? What can't we do? Who's allowed in? Who's kept out? That's not the focus. The focus is on worship and fellowship around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The focus is on our relationship with God. And so that's why we gather here today. And why we'll do it again next week and the week after that. Because as much as we can, on this little piece of property, for a little bit of time every Sunday, we do our best to turn it into a sliver of Eden. To proclaim the good news that withstands every challenge the enemy of this world can throw at it. To tell people that there's hope for you in Jesus Christ. That you are welcome to the king and to his kingdom regardless of your background. This is not a rich man's religion. This is not an accomplished person's religion. This is for people who are bankrupt and broken and in need of a savior. It's for all of us. So this day is not about rules. This gathering, this time is not about you have to be here. It is we were created and we are citizens of a distant country that we have not seen yet. And we belong to a king who is not far from us but who is with us even as we worship. And he has given us a mission and a job to accomplish to make his name known among all peoples on earth. We gather together because one day it's going to be like this. For eternity. I think the pews will be padded, but for all eternity, all of us in perfect union with our Father, His dwelling place with humanity and us with Him. So, what do we learn about our relationship with God from His rest on the seventh day? Well, we, we learn that He delights in us and He's giving us a glimpse of what He intends for us to enjoy with Him forever. As stated, we've traditionally treated day seven as an opportunity for extraneous rules. But today we've seen it's actually about God's desire to dwell with us and us with him. And that's the stuff that fuels worship. Pastor Mike read it a little bit ago from Psalm 100. You sang it in the songs that were on the screen. We worshiped him because God, our maker, our deliverer, is the one who holds eternity for us. And so, brothers and sisters, how's your worship? Your conversations outside of this morning, maybe within this morning, are they dominated by what's wrong with the world, by what's angered you, by what's frustrated you? It's not a sin to have those conversations, but man, I don't want my anger at the way things are to become my theology, the way I view people in the world or even God. But rather, I want to be motivated the way God's people have always been motivated by an outsized vision of who he is, how beautiful and grand and magnificent uh, I want to worship. And, and that sort of God deserves a worship, and we have access to a worship that goes beyond one hour on one day of the week. But our very lives and all that we do can be acts of worship as we mindfully walk with him, keeping in front of us these truths from the seventh day. He delights in me. I've seen that at the cross. And he holds an eternity for me. I see that in Revelation 21. And because of that, I'm going to sing. I'm going to worship. Now, what if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? 
I want to talk to you for just a moment. Um, St. Augustine, old dead guy, is responsible for a very famous, very popular, a very brilliant sentence, and it reads like this. He wrote this. He said to God, of God, because you have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Do you know what it's like to have a restless soul? Absolutely. I think every one of us, by default, we have a restless soul. And so then the mission of our life becomes putting that soul at rest. And we will try anything we can to do that. And so people who are stuck in addiction, it has been a pursuit to quiet a soul. But what has it done? It has just destroyed them further. People who live to their flesh, people who let every little thing define them, those people, they're looking for rest for their souls, and you don't find it. Do you know where you find that rest? You find it in God alone, your creator, your maker, the one who knows you by name, the one who loves you and gave his son for you. All of this rest comes through Jesus Christ and your faith in him. He is God who took on flesh. He died in your place for your sin. He rose from the dead. And his promise to you is this, that if you'll trust in him, he'll save you from your sin. He'll give you rest for your soul. Aren't you tired of being tired? Aren't you tired of being weary all the time? The invitation to you is come to your maker, the one who delights in you, and there you'll find your eternal rest. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to rest. We have sanctified franticness. We have elevated incessant activity. We have awarded exhaustion. We have done all of this to build kingdoms for ourselves. So God, teach us to rest in you. Thank you for the rest that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And though the world wars against our souls and pulls us in so many different directions, Lord, let us sit with you today and understand precisely who we are and who you've made us to be. Thank you that you're the God who rests. Thank you that four commands into the Ten Commandments, you're telling these former slaves to rest Thank you that our picture of eternity is of rest. So, Lord, let us have that now. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would teach us what it is to be made in your image, to delight, to be de delighted in by you. And, Lord, above all, let us be a people who live and worship in the rest we have in you. And, God, for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, let this be the day. They find rest by faith in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.